Chapter 5, verse 1. Then there was a great outcry from the people and their wives against their fellow Jews. There were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many. We must obtain grain in order to eat and stay alive. There were others who said, We are putting out our fields, up our fields, our vineyards, and our houses as collateral in order to obtain grain during the famine. Then there were those who said, We have borrowed money to pay our taxes to the king on our fields and our vineyards. And now, though we share the same flesh and blood as our fellow countrymen, and our children are just like their, other, their children, still we have found it necessary to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have been subject, subjected to slavery while we are powerless to help, since our fields and vineyards now belong to the other people. Up to this point, the, all the conflict has been coming from outside of the city. It's been from foreigners or people who are intermixed with Jewish blood that has been opposing them. And now the opposition is coming from within. And so there are people who are having several complaints of what is going on. And most of it, all of it has to do with how fellow Jews within the community are treating other Jews within the community in a wrongful, unjust kind of a way. So some complained that it was too much that was being sacrificed for Nehemiah's project and that they feared having enough food to eat. So some said, like, we've been spending a lot of time and a lot of effort building this wall, and this is taking us away from our fields. Remember, it took him about a year to build this wall. So they're taking this from our fields. We're, not, we're afraid that we're not going to have enough food and harvest time and take care of our families. So they basically were not trusting God to provide for them, even though God had commanded them to build this wall. Others were complaining that they had taken loans from other Jews in order to pay debts. So there was a group of Jewish people that were poor, and they had taken loans from the wealthier Jews in order to pay debts to probably Persian officials. Most likely they were probably servants of Persian officials back in the capital of Persia where they left, and in order to be able to come home, they had to buy their freedom. They took loans from wealthier Jews that they were own people in order to buy their freedom and either to come back. Most likely what's here is not exactly the loan. Some translations make it sound like that there's a loan involved and that the wealthy Jews are charging interest on top of the loan in order to get it back, which charging interest is wrong according to the law. But it doesn't seem to be what's implied here. What seems to be implied is not exactly interest that they have to pay, but collateral. So what God did allow for, even though he never allowed for interest to be charged to a loan, because you were supposed to be willing to help your brother out or your sister by providing for them, but most likely it's implied as collateral. And God did allow collateral and that I, you need a guarantee that I will pay you back or I will give you this back. So I will give you something that is valuable to me that I have a hard time living without to ensure my speedy payback. Now, what God did say was that if you were lending money to the poor, then collateral is not allowed to be a long-term thing. You're not allowed to hold that over their heads. So if you take their cloak or their animal or something like that in order to ensure that they'll provide it for you, you're not allowed to take it more than a day or two or something like that. Because especially if they're poor, they absolutely need these things in order to survive and produce grain. And so that basically meant that you probably shouldn't be loaning huge amounts of things to people 
that they would take a long time to pay back. And so what God was encouraging in his laws by only allowing to, no, not allowed to charge interest, only allowed to take collateral for a day or two at the most, and nothing that was significantly put them under, basically what he was encouraging was that if you did loan things to people, they'd be small loans, something very small like borrowing your neighbor's lawnmower or needing a couple hundred dollars to get this thing done immediately. It's nothing that would really put them out. And if you were going to give them a larger sum of money, then God basically said that needs to be a gift. It needs to be a gift. God was really kind of anti-loan. And so more the idea the law said, if you're going to give something to somebody, you need to give it to them without expect, expectation of a return, a payback. But the person who's getting the gift should be willing to do the payback. Now, what's interesting is about that is I should be willing to give to you without the need of a payback, which means I'm sacrificially giving to you because I love you. Yet you should be willing to pay me back, which means you're sacrificially loving me as well, and then I desire to give back. And so both of them required to die to self in order to provide for the other person. And so what these people had done is they had taken collateral. And probably some of them had taken like large amounts of collateral, and they were holding on to it for several days, maybe even weeks. And then as a result, these people couldn't survive with the thing that had been taken away from them. And so they were now having to give their children in slavery, not the slavery of America, America's past, but more of a servanthood, to these wealthy people in order to be able to survive. And that, that is wrong. That was absolutely wrong. And so now we have fellow Jews cheating or taking advantage of their own countrymen, let alone the fact that they're already being oppressed by foreigners. When Nehemiah heard this, verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. I considered these things carefully and then registered a complaint with the wealthy and the officials. I said to them, each one of you is seizing collateral from your own countrymen. Because of them, I called for a great public assembly. And I said to them, to the extent possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who have been sold to the Gentiles. But now you yourselves want to sell your own countrymen so that we can then buy them back. They were utterly silent and could not find anything to say. Now, Nehemiah calls him out. The fact that he keeps saying, we did this, we did this, we did this, suggests that Nehemiah himself had also loaned money to these people and, and to buy their freedom. The difference is the fact that he's so angry and they don't say, well, you're doing it too, suggests that he wasn't taking the collateral that he had offered to buy their freedom and then given them money, but he wasn't expecting a payback where these people were. And so he assumed that everybody was doing the same as he was. And when he found out, he was outraged, incredibly furious with them. And the fact that it says that they were silent and could find nothing to say shows that not only was Nehemiah innocent of this misdeed, but it also shows that they knew they were guilty. They were, knew they were guilty, especially when our human natures immediately justify our actions. And the fact that they didn't do that, especially considering the big public arena, Nehemiah was right to confront them publicly in front of a large amount of people rather than individually. Now, there are times that you should go to your brother or sister one-on-one. And Christ even commands us to go one-on-one. If they don't listen, then go with a brother or sister. If they don't listen, then bring them before the church. But this is kind of what I tell my students. 
the more private your fence is, the more private I'm going to confront you. The more public and out in front of everybody your fence is, the more public it's going to be dealt with. And so the arena that you sin in is the arena that we'll deal with it in. Because the other people need to see that this is not tolerated either. And they need to know that there's justice and they need to know they're going to be protected. And you've wronged them in some way too. And so I think there's obviously everything needs to be done with prayer. But there is some idea that not every confrontation has to be private. Some demand a public dealing with it because of the public nature of the sin. So Nehemiah calls them out and they can't respond in any kind of defense or justification. Verse 9, Then I said, The thing that you are doing is wrong. Should you not conduct yourselves in the fear of our God in order to avoid the reproach of the Gentiles who are our enemies? So you should be living in such a way that shows that you respect and fear and you're in awe of God's laws. And you should know this because I've been here for several months teaching you the law and Ezra's been here for teaching you the law. And then he says, it's bad enough that we had the Gentiles physically attacking us and trying to prevent the wall. Do you want them to also levy accusations of not being moral and loving people to our own people? Basically, this is Nehemiah's way of saying, What Christ would later say, they will know that you belong to me by the way that you treat each other. And this is one of the biggest complaints of Americans against the church is that we don't look or act differently in the way that we treat each other. And I don't mean nobody in the church does, but as a whole. And this is what Nehemiah is saying. We do not need the world around us to hate us for legitimate reasons when they already hate us for illegitimate reasons. We don't need to add to their argument and this is what God, Nehemiah is saying. Even as my relatives and my associates are lending money and grain, but let us abandon this practice of seizing collateral. This very day return to them their fields, their vineyards, their olive trees, and their houses, along with the interests, the grain that you exacted from them on the money, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. So the fact that he talks about return what you've taken as collateral as well as interest suggests that they were also charging interest. But that's not what Nehemiah was really upset about. Even though that was a technical violation of the law, that interest wasn't crippling them because the interest didn't cause them to lose everything they own. Yet the collateral was causing them to lose their land and their, their children. And so that's what Nehemiah focuses on there. Verse 12, they replied, we will return these things and we will no longer demand anything from them. We will do just as you say. Then I called the priests and made the wealthy and the officials swear to do what they had been promised. And I also shook out my garment. And I said in this way, may God shake out from your his house and your property every person who does not carry out this matter. In this way may be shaken out and emptied. All the assembly replied, so be it. And they praised Yahweh, and the people did as they had promised. Now, just like with Ezra, when he required them to have a divorce, he, when they said, okay, we'll do this, he immediately got the priests and said, swear before them. He didn't want to lose the momentum of their conviction and their emotions and have them go back on it after a good night's sleep. And so Nehemiah does the same thing. The minute they feel emotionally convicted and they realize they're wrong and they're ready to do something, he brings the priests in and makes them swear before God that they will follow through because this process is going to take a while. And so they agree. And then he shakes out his robes in front of them and says, May God shake out all the evil in your house and may they be dealt with. 
and so graphic and so like visual. So maybe that's like the bony, waggy finger in the face. Verse 14, from that day I was appointed governor in the land of Judah. That is from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Xerxes I. 12 years in all, neither I nor my relatives ate the food allotted to the governor. But the former governors who preceded me had burdened the people and had taken food and wine from them in addition to 40 shekels of silver. The associates were also domineering over the people. But I did not behave this way due to my fear of God. I gave myself to the work on this wall without even purchasing a field, and all my associates were gathered there for the work. Nehemiah is saying, in all the 12 years that I serve as governor, I never once took the tribute that previous governors had required from the people that had been provided for me. It could be that he's talking about neither I or my relatives, as in family members that lived with me and ate with me, or it could be that neither I nor the other officials around me that we had political meetings with and that kind of stuff took any of this. So what he's saying is that the governors before me, the king of Persia required that on a regular basis the people give a tribute to their officials. And you can call this a tax or a tribute or whatever, but it was a means of providing for them. Now, this wasn't exactly a wrong thing because we need to pay the people that lead us. They are serving us as civil servants, and we need to make sure that they're provided for so they can serve in that capacity. But Nehemiah saw this as wrong because the previous governors had extorted the people, demanded even more, and oppressed them as a result of that. And Nehemiah probably chose not only to not extort them or press them because he was a godly man, but probably decided to not take anything because he wanted to disconnect himself from that image in all ways possible. If the previous people hadn't abused it, then maybe he would have accepted the tribute. But ultimately he said, I don't want to be associated with that in any kind of way. I don't want you to think that I'm trying to do that. I don't want you unintentionally feel like you have to. And I'm going to trust God. And so he didn't allow himself or anyone around him to do that. And so this is why he was saying that he had not allowed money or power to corrupt him. And that he was trying to remain pure to God and truly lead his people because he cared for them and wanted their best interest in mind. And this is incredible because you don't see very many leaders who don't get corrupted with power. And I, I mean, I can't really think of any. You don't really see, even all throughout the Bible, it's like, it's a big deal when God and the narrator point this out. Because we've already seen, after many years of going through all these books of the Bible, God goes out of his way to point out the faults and the corruptions of the people in the Bible. Because one of the major themes and arguments that he's making throughout the Bible is, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the fact that he highlights Nehemiah's lack of corruption says how godly he, this guy really truly was. And so Nehemiah is going to have his faults. And those are going to come out in a little bit. But remember, no one's perfect. And no one's without faults. But we don't see the corruption and the absolute lack of trust in God that we have seen in so many leaders throughout the years. And so overall, Nehemiah, with, even with his faults, is still a godly man that one can look to and emulate. 
And if you've been around long enough, I very rarely say that because I really don't think the Bible is lifting any of these people up as heroes. I think God is the hero in the Bible, and that's the whole point. So that's a pretty big deal. Verse 17, there were 150 Jews and officials who dined with me routinely, in addition to those who came to us from nations all around us. Every day, one ox, six select sheep, and some birds were prepared for me, and every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Despite all this, I did not require the food allotted to the governor, for the work was demanding on this people. Please remember me for good, O oh my God, for all that I have done for his, this people." So he just made it clear that he hasn't done that. And then he says, please, God, remember me. God, I've done my best to serve you and be righteous. And just please see that. Please. I mean, he didn't say, hey, God, put me up in front of everybody so everybody can see how good I am. Remember me that way. He just said personally in his own prayer thoughts, God, please remember me. Please, please can take this into consideration. And because we can all think of 50 million sins that we've committed to the one good thing that we've done. And he's like, just please take notice of this. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the people that he's going to talk about now are those foreigners, the people from Samaria and the Philistine territory that are opposing him. So now he's come back to the external opposition. When Sambalt and Tobiah and Geshem and the Arab... And the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and no breach remained in it, even though up to that time I had not positioned the door and the gates. Sambal and Geshem sent word to me saying, Come on, let's set up a time to meet together at Kephraim in the plain of Onah. Now they intended to do me harm. So I sent a message to them saying, I am engaged in an important work and I am unable to come down. Why should the work come to halt? When I leave it to come down to you, they contacted me four times in this way, and I responded the same way each time. So they had realized the wall had been built, and everything was ready except for the city gates. And they know that Nehemiah is the strongest part of this community of Jews. And so they want to get him away and distract him. Basically, say, hey, we really need to talk to you. Let's have a political delegation between your people and our people all the way down by the Mediterranean Sea. That would have been at least 25 miles away. At least 25 miles away. So this would remove Nehemiah considerably from the city and put it at risk. And, of course, we don't know how well the Jews would keep working with Nehemiah not there. So this is a ploy to slow him down because nothing else had worked. And he basically responded, he doesn't really give them a, a good answer. He just says, I'm busy. Like, I can't because I'm washing my hair tonight. Right? And, and he's like, I'm busy, and I can't do that. And they keep proceeding to bother him because he knows it's a trap. He knows it's a trap. Nowhere have these people ever shown their interest in really collaborating in any kind of peaceful way. Verse 5, the fifth time that Sambalt sent this assistant to me in this way, had opened letter in his hand, and written in it was the following words. Among the nations it is rumored, and Geshem has substantiated it, that you and the Jews have intentions of revolting, and for this reason you are building the wall. Furthermore, according to these rumors, you are going to become their king. 
You have also established prophets to announce in Jerusalem on your behalf, we have a king in Judah. Now the king is going to hear about these rumors, so come on, let's talk about this. He actually is incredibly deceitful. This is like the media and their fake news. And they know that people are going to believe it because that's what people do. So what does it mean by an open letter? Normally you would write a letter and you would seal it with the wax and the imprint and then you would send it to them. And nobody would break this. If, you, if the seal had been broken before it got to you, then you knew it had been corrupted. And that usually brought a death penalty in some kind of way. The higher up authority that you were and the greater authority your seal brought, the greater the penalty. And if it was a king, it would bring a death penalty. But by opening, making it unsealed to begin with, then people could look at it and read it. And so he basically puts this letter saying, Hey, Nehemiah, we know that you're trying to make yourself king, revolt against the, the emperor, and establish your own power base. As people after people after people read this, the rumor is going to spread. And, of course, it always turns into something much bigger as it moves to the nations. And it basically creates a distrust of his people for him. And it undermines all of his selflessness and really trying to rule the people and his humility as a governor. Yet, it doesn't work. And this is powerful. Nehemiah's character is so solid that the people don't believe him. Don't, sorry, the people don't believe the letter and they don't believe the rumor that is there. And this says something because there are some people who are going to oppose him. There are Jewish people who are related to um, Tobiah and they're going to go with them, and yet even they are not powerful enough with the rumor of the letter in order to persuade people that Nehemiah truly is corrupt. Verse 8, So I sent word back to him, We are not engaged in these activities you are describing. All this is a figment of your imagination. All of them were wanting to scar, scare us, supposing that the land hands will go slack from the work and won't get done. Now this is the other thing about Nehemiah. He doesn't throw slander back either. In our political debates and campaigns, it's always like throwing mud on each other and crap on each other all the time. And that's how we've learned to debate each other. And yet he doesn't say that. He just says, this isn't true. The end. He doesn't try to give an argument. He doesn't try to justify anything. He just says, it's not true. Point blank. And it didn't deter anybody. And so then he prays, so now strengthen my hands. Once again, he just keeps offering these little quick prayers to God, showing that he's continually in touch with God. And this is kind of what it means to meditate on the Word of God day and night. God didn't mean to become a monk or a nun and shut yourself off and just read the Bible alone. He just meant, like, have God at the forefront of your thoughts. Be in communion with Him. Be aware that God is going with you and that God is your companion. He's your friend is walking through life with you on every single basis. Verse 10, Then I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delilah, the son of Mehedabal, and he was confined to his home. And he said, Let's set up a time to meet in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. It will surely be night that they will come to kill you. Now, a false prophet by the name of Shemaiah comes along. And he's obviously been paid by Tobiah and all these people. And he says, hey, I need to talk to you. Now, he's disabled. 
Now, he's most likely he's faking being disabled, faking being crippled, and that he can't make the walk. So he's forcing Nehemiah to come to him. Now, why would he do this? Because if he went to Nehemiah's house, most people probably wouldn't notice him that much. And lots of people go in and out of Nehemiah's house because he's a governor, and this is his political house and the way to deal with things. So it wouldn't have been called much attention. Yet Nehemiah is the governor, and he's more noticeable in the public eye. And more people are going to notice him as he walks through the streets, and they're going to be more likely to notice when he's not in the office, he's walking around, and who he's going to go to. Because a lot of people probably would like him to come to their house for favor and privileges or things. And so they're going to pay attention to where he's going. It's not a big deal when people go to his house because he can't control that. And it could be anybody. But if he chooses to go to somebody's house, that's a big deal because now he's initiating. So what this guy's doing is he's saying that I'm disabled. I can't make the journey. Come to me. It's forcing Nehemiah to come to his house, forcing everyone to take notice of what Nehemiah is doing and where he's going and who he's meeting with. See, these guys are clever. And yet, in all their cleverness, it's not really working out for them because God is against them. And Nehemiah's character is solid. So when he comes, he says, I have received an oracle, basically. Now, he doesn't literally say that, but the, the, the way that he phrases the language has this official, like, I know something you don't. And is there's almost like this idea that he got an oracle from God, that somebody's trying to kill you. So what would be the safest place to be protected? I know what, the house of God, the temple. Nothing bad could happen to you. Let's both go there together and hide. Why is this such a big deal? Because, remember, the only people that are allowed in the temple are Levites, the priest. And Nehemiah is not a Levite or a priest. And so he's not allowed to enter the temple. And God made it very clear that that is punishable by death. Now, there's a good chance that God may not kill him when he enters the temple, but since the glory of God has not entered the temple and returned to the temple, and it's not this holy, sacred place like it was in the tabernacle or the temple under um, Solomon. However, even if God didn't, it's still a disobedience against God. It's a violation of his law. And even if God didn't kill him, it would completely publicly discredit him as a godly person in front of everybody around there. Yet, we often do irrational things when we're afraid for our lives. If you really truly believe that somebody was trying to kill you, and somebody like a prophet is trying to protect you, and this kind of could sound logical, like, I need to go to the house of God, I need to hide there, I need to be safe. And if you're filled with fear, a lot of times logic goes out the window. But one, Nehemiah is a solid man who's very rational in many cases. And likewise, he doesn't believe this guy. He knows the motives that are here. So he refuses. Verse 11, But I replied, Should a man like me run away? Would someone like me flee to the temple in order to save his life? I will not go. So in some ways he's saying, I trust God too much to protect me. And likewise, that doesn't make sense to flee to the temple to be safe because then I'll just die by the hand of God. I recognize the fact that God had not sent him, for he had spoken the prophecy against me as a hired angel of Tobiah and Sambal. He had been hired to scare me so that I wouldn't do this and thereby sin, and they would thus bring reproach on me and I would be discredited. He immediately sees through all this. And then once again, remember me, O God, 
Tobiah and Sembal, in light of these actions, and theirs, also Noadiah and the prophetess and the other prophets who were trying to scare me. Notice that Nehemiah prays kind of a two-parter here, like remember me, God, and remember them. So there's an implication here, God. Take, please take care of me and them in accordance to your justice. Now this, this is what makes Nehemiah also amazing. He's not falling into all these political traps and scare tactics. Like not only is he an amazing man of God with great character, not only is he continually trusting and meditating God's word all the time, not only is he above corruption, but the fact that he's so his character is so solid because of his constant communion with God, then he's tapped into the will of God. In some ways, he's become like a prophet. I mean, remember the whole the, the whole definition of a prophet is someone who knows the will of Yahweh and speaks the will of Yahweh to people. And though he's not officially a prophet, he is very in tune with God. And he's very in tune with the people around him. And this is what wisdom is. Wisdom is the ability to discern the wisdom, the will of God and how it applies to your life, the lives of the people around you, and the world. The true definition of wisdom is not just knowing the difference between right and wrong. That's worldly wisdom. Not just the ability to give good rational advice. That's worldly wisdom. Now, according to the book of Proverbs, even that wisdom comes from God. But it's still based mostly on life experience or the culture around you or your image of God consciousness or the gifts of God. But to tap into the true foundation. The pure source of wisdom is to directly know what God's will is for what is happening in your life and to be able to speak that to other people and see what is going on in their life and to be able to give them advice and also discern the lies, the philosophies, and the false worldviews or filter the things that are coming through you. True wisdom is the ability to turn on the news and listen to it and begin to determine whether this is truly godly or not. This is God's will or not. It's to be able to sit across from somebody and listen to them talk and know whether they're the words that they're saying or the things that they did or the way that they're thinking is godly in accordance with God's will. And it's the ability to be able to speak into that scenario in an enlightening kind of a way through God's Holy Spirit as well as stand back and look at your own life in an objective, honest way. And Nehemiah is so in touch with God that he's not, he's, he's not deceived. He, he's not deceived by his own heart. He's not deceived by the lies of the world around him. And he's able to guide Israel truly. This is truly a wise man with good character. Verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elulah in the first just 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard, and all the nations who were around us saw this, they were greatly disheartened. They knew that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So the minute it was accomplished, they were immediately disheartened. Because once they saw that will, that wall, they had done everything that they could think of. They had tried to trash talk him. They had tried to scare him. They had tried to spread false lies and fake news about him. They had tried to lure him into a death trap. They had tried to get the, his own people to turn against him. They physically attacked him, and nothing, nothing succeeded. 
With Zerubbabel, it would have worked within a couple of days. I mean, Zerubbabel, they were just like, we don't like you. We're going to oppose you. He's like, I can't do this anymore. Okay, And I sympathize with that. Okay, I mean, there's so many times that parents face off with me, and I'm like, I'm done, God. Okay, And it's like, but in the end, it's like, no, this is a calling from God. And there's this, this, and this, and this, and this, and validates that I am where I belong. And, and so Zerubbabel, didn't, he gave in to that. He gave into that lies. He gave into the that that threat, that opposition. Yet Nehemiah faced way more and still stood solid because of his continual connection with God. I really truly believe it. One of the things that I told you that marks him drastically different is we don't get any other character in the Bible that throws up so many spur of the moment continual prayers to God like this. And yet it's coincidental at the same time that he seems to be one of the most solid characters in the Bible. And I'm not trying to discount Daniel in any kind of a way, but Daniel's not highlighted like this. I mean, with Daniel, we just see a brief moment where he's going to die, so he prays to God and he interprets the dream, the end. Or Daniel is willing to pray despite the people threatening his life, the end. We just get these little snippets of his life, and it's really just a moment. But with Nehemiah, we're actually watching him. It's almost like a day-by-day, like, TV reality show or they're following him yet there's nothing there's no script and it's not being faked in any way and so we don't really get that with Daniel like we do with him and I think that it's very crucial to see here that this connection is not accidental this connection between his prayer life and his character is not accidental this is a good definition of what God means to be connected to him and see him guiding you. Verse 17, In those days the aristocrats of Judah repeatedly sent letters to Tobiah, Tobiah, and responses for Tobiah were repeatedly coming to them. For many in Judah had sworn allegiance to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shanachiah, son of Arah, and his son Jonathan had married the daughter of Meshalom, son of Barakai, And they were telling me about his good deeds and then taking back to him the things I said. Tobiah, on the other hand, sent letters in order to scare me. So Nehemiah says, oh, by the way, during this entire time that I was building the wall, Tobiah also had relatives who were Jewish living among us who were constantly trying to undermine us. And they were constantly talking about me and taking what I said back to them. So they were feeding Tobiah intel about what Nehemiah was saying and doing and all that kind of stuff. So the entire time, even his own people were undermining him as little birdies in political conspiracies. 